Hello again. Welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am Adam Duritz, and I'm here with my friend. James Campion. How are you, Adam? I, I am pretty good. How did you survive the, the snow? Very good. We got a foot, and uh, everybody expected an inch. So it was loads of laughs. My daughter enjoyed it, though. That's the most important thing. But we're good. We're good. We didn't lose power. We're, we're, we're rolling along. Glad to hear that. This is, uh, this is, by the way, your proof out in podcast land that we are not doing these on Mondays right before you hear them Tuesdays. <laughs> We're actually recording as many as we can right now. Yeah. Because at some point I'm going to have to go on tour and it'll be harder to do them. We want to keep this going every week. So we're, we're building a, a backlog. We sure are. Yep. I know we talked about doing this whole podcast when I called you up the other day, but I wanted to play you something because this is why I suddenly got a complete hard on to do this and why I wanted to play this. And I'm not sure you've ever heard this before. Uh, I had not. I had heard of them, but I had never heard it. And I want to play this song for you, and then I'll talk to you about it. How do you like that idea? I really love it. All right, here we go. People in the world, dig this. Great. 
I Isn't that a fucking that. killer song? Unbelievable. I, you know why it's unbelievable? It sounds like everything, and it sounds like nothing. Yeah, it sounds like all the great bands that fo- that followed it, and a lot of the ones that it it came from. But like, what is it, right? right. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's death. Never heard of it. Here's what happens. So I'm at the the basketball game the other day. I'm at the Garden, and the Warriors are playing the Knicks, and we're hanging out afterwards, uh, waiting for uh, uh, Draymond and, and Steve to come out, Kerr, and. Uh, this woman is sitting behind me, this elderly uh, African-American woman. She says to me, wait, you're a musician, right? I said, yeah. She goes, you're, you're Counting Crows, right? I said, yeah. She says, I shouldn't say elderly. She's not that much older than me when I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> and she was a teacher in New York for like 30, 40 years and, then, and a basketball coach. She's retired now. And she said, I want to ask you a question because you're a musician. Like, what came first? Like, who's the first punk band? You know, are a lot of those pants everybody talks about? Do they actually come before death or what? I was like, I don't know. I'm I'm remembering that I've heard about, and then uh, I have never. Zoe says, like the the band in a band called Death in the documentary, and the woman says, Yeah, okay. Here's the deal with these guys: early 1970s, three brothers like Bobby, David, and Dennis Hackney. I can't remember all their names right now. They're playing in all these funk Motown bands in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then they get really turned on to like MC5, the Stooges, things that are going on in Detroit. Grand, that sounds like grand funk to me. Well, yeah, also another Detroit band, another you know, another Detroit Michigan band. band. Right? And they decide to play some fucking rock and roll. And they make this band, and they're awesome. They go in and they cut a bunch of tracks with someone in, in, in 73, early 73, and they get heard by Clive Davis. Uh, and he wants to sign them. He's going to sign them. He just wants them to change the name of the band. The singer David refuses. He doesn't want to put out death, you know? Sure. And uh, the singer refuses and is stubborn about it and sticks to it. Ends up causing a rift. They all end up going back to New England for a little hiatus to get over it and kind of never happens. So it never comes out. These are songs they recorded then that would have maybe been their first album. They got compiled years and years later, like just, you know, in the last decade or so. There's a documentary about them called A Band Called Death right now. Here's the kicker, though. Zoe says to the woman, is this like the Hackney Brothers? Like Bobby Hackney? And the woman says, yeah. And Zoe says, oh, I knew him. I was friends with him. What? Because it turns out that when she lived in, in, in the... I guess after she got out of college or high school for when she dropped out, she went to Vermont, lived in Burlington for a while, and he's living there too. And he's really good friends with this friend of hers, Sarah. It's like her best friend. And so they used to come over all the time, and the brothers were like jamming. They were putting a new band together. And they were those two guys that we just heard. Well, there's three of them. The lead singer uh, passed away a while ago. Um, The two other brothers that were the bass player and the drummer, you know, the bass player, Bobby, who Zoe knew. So I'm like... And the woman's talking to me about that. And I'm like, yeah, I remember reading about this, like flipping through Netflix or seeing the documentary or something and not, not getting a chance to watch it, but being kind of fascinated by reading about it. And I get home and I'm like, okay, I got to find this out. So the next day I'm sitting here by myself and I got to track this down. I, I go start reading about it. I find the record like, you know, on iTunes or something and ordered a copy of it too, which just got here. And put it on and then for the next two or three days I didn't listen to anything else just, it's only 26 minute song there's like seven songs I just went round and round and round on it for days and it it blew my mind because 
they're fucking amazing. They're African American New England. Punk well, they band. were in Detroit then. Right. They ended up going back to New England after the record thing didn't work out and going to, like, I don't know, Bobby was living in Vermont, in Burlington. Right. I don't know where the other ones are. I guess they're all living up there. Wow. But it's a Detroit thing. They were like a funk soul it's band who decided, who heard, like, like we talk about with so many things with punk music, who heard the MC5, who heard, you know, uh, the Stooges, who, and wanted to play more. That one sounds more like Grand Funk because it's a little more melodic. A lot of the other stuff is closer to the MC5. And plus, and the he Grand sounds funk. just like Mark Farner. That's the first thing I thought of. I mean, you know? it's just. Oh, the singer, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's so good. Really? It's, it, it's, uh. That's why I love this podcast, man. I love doing it with you. I'm sure people love listening to it. I never in a million, I, 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 no idea. Honestly. And I thought I knew my punk. Well, it just got me thinking when I was listening to it, how much great music. Because a lot of punk bands, the stories aren't that dissimilar to this. There are ones that were huge and everything, but there's a lot of bands in the punk universe that were hugely influential or people that were hugely influential. And nobody really knows about. Or who didn't produce much actual stuff that came out till way, way, way later. So they were only known by the other people that were in CBGBs that saw or them Or their live performances, correct. There's so many bands that were successful in, you know, in London or in New York or in Cleveland but didn't get much out of there or in San Francisco, as it'll come up later. And I just thought... There are ones that people have heard, and it's a very interesting history because it's all so interwoven with the people that are influential with each other. They're all in each other's bands throughout all of punk history. But there are just so many great songs. And I think because punk, in a lot of ways, years later, turned into much more of a hardcore affair, uh, that a lot of people don't realize how based it is in just great pop songwriting. A lot of it was a return to just, let's write something simple, and let's write something short. Let's bang our guitars somewhat. Let's be funny instead of serious. Let's... You know, in a lot of ways, it was a return to Buddy Holly. Write me a two-minute pop song that has a great melody and a chorus, and I'll bang the guitar over it. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different sides of punk music, all of which are worth exploring and listening to, and all of which I think are much, 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 much more listenable than people think of because of the attitude associated with with punk maybe, you know, later. I, I just think there's so much music that people can dig into and the great tragedy of a lot of it is that people didn't get a lot of these bands and that they, like death, just disappeared. You know, even a lot of the successful ones, it's pretty brief and short sometimes, you know, right. and... Uh, and not very lucrative. If at all, yeah, and... Uh, yeah, well, everything you're saying about the music, let me just say, punk, we talked about when we did our uh, chamber pop show and the experimental aspect of the Beach Boys and the Beatles in the 60s and... Everyone just getting so in-depth and so production-oriented. Uh, that was the answer to punk. But it also was... I mean, punk was the answer to that. Yes, the yeah. answer to punk was that, right, exactly. Or punk was the answer to that. The, but it also was a great reflection. Now, I always joke about this, and you and I are from the same generation. Uh, you know, We're kind of considered the butt-end of the boomers. But I often say, unless you're threat- if you were not threatened to go to Vietnam or high at Woodstock... You're not part of the boomer thing. It was like we didn't get the boomer thing, you know? Yeah. Punk was my thing. It was the first rock and roll that was made by people around my age responding to the hippie movement. And the even though we all loved all that music, and I grew up with it, well, me, the punk was a new version of that. And then it made me love Little Richard and the Elvis records and the Chuck Berry and the Buddy Holly. Everything you just said, it brought me over the hump going back to what inspired the Beatles and the Beach Boys in the first. Well, I think the thing, the thing we don't we forget right now is that when like punk's not really an answer to the Beatles and the Beach Boys to me. Here's the thing that happens. Someone makes great music 
and then everybody else wants to do it like that, it opens up a barrier for people. It breaks down a barrier, and everyone wants to do it. And what happens when everyone starts doing something is a lot of people that do it fucking suck. And then another movement comes along in answer to that. You know, like, I love the police. You know, and maybe they invented that kind of reggae rock thing in some ways or popularized it. Uh, A lot of reggae rock that came after that isn't as good as the police's first couple records or the the early ska records or the specials or like the, or madness or the beat, you know, the English beat. But But I mean, and like, just like bitches brew is a great album, but a lot of fusion annoyed the shit out of people. Some other fusion is great too, but some of it drives, you know, I don't really think that when someone responds to fusion and goes back to trad, they're really responding to miles Davis. They're responding to something else that annoyed them after that. Right. And that's important to realize that in, in, when we look back on it from, 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the past, we're remembering the big ones. But the part of life that drove people crazy at those moments, especially back when it was just radio, is that what you would turn on and hear in your car all day was stuff that you didn't want to hear. Not necessarily the Beatles or the Stones, but somebody else that annoyed the shit out of you with their seven-minute pop opus. And by the way, you and I both fall into this category. We love everything. I mean, we, we, we play Carpenters on this podcast. I grew up with some crazy stuff that a lot of rock critics, the people who loved punk and embrace it, like Lester Bangs and Grail Marcus and all these guys, they were appalled at some of the stuff that inspired us and we loved as kids. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the ethos of, this, of the Sex Pistols or The Clash who put in one of their most famous songs, Phony Beatlemania, which pissed off a lot of us Beatle fans, but we understood where they were coming from. Right, but I'm, I guess why I'm bringing it up is because you also have the uh, Generation X, who wrote, who in their song, I think it's your and your generation, or Ready Steady Go, are saying, "I love the Beatles, I love the Stones, I love all this, and I'm, you know, and, and I'm still a punk." And and he got a lot of shit for that because this is my problem with it. What happens is like somebody breaks a barrier and they're amazing, and then a movement comes up behind it, and you have a lot of other people now who are just writing about it or talking about it or right. dressing they like become it a symbol or of playing that like right. it, and then they start telling everybody what you have to be in the being movement. When the whole point was the, uh, the guy who started it was thinking. I don't want to be what everyone else is. I'm going to be my own thing. And it's great if you want to play like that, if you're great. But it's the telling everybody what it is after that that annoys the shit out of me in every movement. Because those people are just like, who the fuck are you? Right. You know, and, 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 and trying to decide who's punk and who's not punk and who's a poser and who's not a poser. When half the idea was to pose. You know? Right. You know, and, uh, and that is a pose. Punk is a pose. Like all rock, everything is a pose of a certain kind. It's just whether it's really fun and cool or not. I don't have any problem with you dressing that way. But just because you dress that way doesn't mean you get to tell me how to dress. Or that you're not part of the club. You can't love this music or understand it unless you wear yeah, a... Uh, that shit gets know, really right. annoying You have a mohawk me. or a pin through your cheek. Um, now, anyways, but I want to go back. Cause, uh, yes, okay, please. So go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say one last thing to bring it back to where I think you want to go. And that is... The ethos part only comes in British punk. And the thing that pissed me off as a rock writer and historian and author is for years, not among the literati or the people who covered it or the fans, this, this idea, this overarching idea that punk somehow is what I just said, the mohawks, the green hair, the pins, that stuff that England made as an ethos and as a fashion statement and as a political statement was born in New York City, and even before, I'm going to talk about the CBGBs because I know where well, you're going to go. Well, almost all of it is Richard Hell anyways. Right. Malcolm McLaren, we'll talk about this when we get to that yes. part. I don't want to get too far ahead. Right. But there's a but guy. we're setting it up. This is the. There's a guy, and this is, this is a very quintessential punk thing to happen. Richard Hell uh, of television is in television. Right. He leaves television because, you know, it, it turns out it's really going to be Tom Verlaine's thing. 
and he wants to do his own thing. He forms Johnny Thunder and the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunder. He forms the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunder. Right. He leaves the Heartbreakers because he realized it's really going to be Johnny Thunder's thing, and it's not really what he wants to do. He's instrumental in forming two of these very, very important bands, and he's gone before they ever record a note. At the same time, Malcolm McLaren is in England, and they're trying to find a, a singer for the Sex Pistols. He's come over to America and checked out the punk scene over here and really flipped out looking at just this guy that was around a lot of it, Richard Hell, and invites him to come over and be the lead singer because he likes the way he looks. He likes the ripped shirts. Yeah, yeah. He likes the safety pins. He is Johnny Rotten before yeah. Johnny Rotten. And, and he ends up, Richard Hell says no and ends up starting his own band, Richard Hell and the Voidoids, which produces some spectacular music. Yes. My point is there's a guy who's in all this shit... <laughs> Before any of them record a note, is instrumental in four or five different bands, and then finally does his own stuff, and and somewhat gets forgotten by a lot of people that you know. On the, when you're talking about the top of what is, you know what? Let's go back. In the late '60s, there's a band here in New York City. They're the proteges of Andy Warhol. Uh, their lead singer later becomes he becomes a very cool figure. Right then, he later becomes a huge instrumental figure in rock and roll. Lou Reed. The band also includes uh, John Cale, Maureen Tucker, Doug Yule, and Sterling Morrison. We'll just play you one song and we'll talk about it a little bit after. This is I'm Waiting for the Man from their first album, The Velvet Underground, and Nico. And of course, Nico was in that band in the beginning. I forgot about that. Uh, this is I'm Waiting for the Man.
That is the lo-fi kings and godfathers of punk rock. I just want to say a couple of things. Firstly, I know there's going to be a lot of people that are going to say, well, what about the Kingsman and Louie Louie? What about the Trashman and, and uh, you know, Surfing Bird? There are songs that are definitely the godfather to that. But this is where I'm waiting for the man and the very first Velvet Underground really does invent punk. Number one, as Adam said beautifully earlier, the Velvet Underground made no money. <laughs> they sold no records. Uh, they made no attempt at making quality pop hits, although a lot of those songs are beautifully done, as you said earlier. Uh, they're great pop songs that were covered years later by other artists to greater acclaim. It's lo-fi. It's street. It's anarchists. It's written by a man who had uh, electric shock therapy by his parents when they found out he was a homosexual who was an educated man, went to Syracuse University for studied poetry and literature was well read studied and was sponsored by Andy Warhol, one of the great, maybe the last great artists of the 20th century it really is the very foundation of punk and it happens right here in New York City and it happens as a result of the streets, that's a song about drugs, it's a song about Desperation, written by a desperate drug addict and someone who is – there's an authenticity to that that I think beyond the music, the rip-roaring, loud, distorted guitars, the driving beat, and that singing that's not really singing, that's punk. But it's the, it's the authenticity of the Velvet Underground that I think invents punk and has inspired more bands than anybody ever. Well, I'll tell you why it invents punk and everything. Is because, as I think it was Lester Bangs who said it, nobody ever bought a Velvet Underground record, but everyone that ever heard one picked up a guitar and started a band. Because you just ask any musician. It's the foundation for so many musicians playing music. So many people that, like, played music got turned on to wanting to play music by the Velvets for whatever reason. I don't know. I can't. You could sum it up if you want to try, but it's a billion different people who make a billion different kinds of music in a billion different ways that are sound like the Velvets, that don't sound like the Velvets, that's about drugs and heroin, that's about girls and chocolate, uh, as someone once said about uh, the undertones years later. But, you know, this is 1967. It's the year before the Summer of Love, uh, and they're doing this. 
you listen to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Huts Club Band and you don't go, hey, I can do that. You listen to this? Come on. Me and my friends can do this. I mean, and you're wrong, but, <laughs> but, but you do. Man, that's part of it, too. You do think that. But it's even that, the vision of thinking about wrong. it, and what everyone else is doing in 1967 and what they're thinking about. You know, and we talked about the contrast a year later in 1968 of Arthur Lee and Love and their record and how it's a darker version of that. But, man, what the, what the, uh, what the Velvets are into right then, you know. And it's true chaos. I mean, if you don't, when I'll wrap the Velvets, we have a lot of stuff to talk about, but... If you really want to know about the Velvets, there's some great books about Lou Reed uh, and about Andy Warhol and in the whole movement. I just read that great one by Thompson, which was the book about Lou Reed and uh, Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell, um, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, and David Bowie. That movement, the factory movement by, by Warhol and all those people, they would play these happenings around New York. They'd spike everyone's drink with LSD, and people would go to these underground clubs, and there was a ton of stuff going on, 90% of it illegal. And they would show these films against these guys, and they'd be all dressed in black, just playing at painfully ear-splitting volumes, this music. And it really is something that will never be repeated. There's, I shouldn't say that. You know, there's always some great stuff. But there's something about that period in New York that was dangerous and lost and mystical that those guys came out of it and I think it just it's smeared on the record as if it was butter on top of toast it's really just that kind of movement is smeared on those records but let's not I don't want to undercut how just how brilliant the writing is in describing this this like you know it's a guy looking for a, uh, you know a, a hit a, a hit smack. of heroin he's, like he's, getting, yeah, he's, he's looking, looking for, for some heroin right. just, I'm just going to give you the first verse and the last verse first verse I'm waiting for my man, $26 in my hand, up to Lexington, 125, which is the... Harlem. The, well, yeah. Feel sick and dirty, more dead than alive. I'm waiting for my man. He's fucked. <laughs> the last verse, baby, don't you holler. Darling, don't you ball and shout. I'm feeling good. You know, I'm going to work it on out. I'm feeling good. I feel oh so fine until tomorrow, but that's just some other time. I'm waiting for my man. Walk it home. You know, I mean, like, I love that he even includes in the song when he gets the fucking, you know, the hey junk, white boy, he gets what the you junk. doing uptown? That's early, you know, but I mean, he goes through all the different parts of getting it. You know, the white boy in Harlem bit, the the finding the guy and how classic he is, the place he goes to do it, you know, and then the feeling afterwards that it's all going to be fine until tomorrow, but that's some other time, you know. Anyway, that, 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 let's move on because I don't want to spend forever in the roots of it because there is so much music sure. to get to in punk. This is going to take several podcasts. Yep. Um, Go ahead. So let's move on. into into That's New York City. But in Detroit, a couple years later, 1969, you get the first album by the Stooges. Uh Talk about the Stooges. You, you wanted to play some off the second album, which is 70, but uh, talk about right, it. Right, right. The Funhouse record, which I think is the better one. Everyone always looks at the three, uh, the, the first one, which is fantastic but it's got a lot of psychedelia in it and then the the third one which is kind of messy uh, raw power that was supposed to be produced by bowie but bowie backed out and then it got produced by some guy who was high in the, that happened to be around and uh, even iggy uh, pop was appalled by it eventually it came out and it was a big hit but i love funhouse but i want to say one thing about iggy and the stooges that's very important they take the stoic lou reed character the 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 the, the four or five ebony clad new yorkers and they Invent the physical part of punk. Iggy dancing like he's been shot full of something, 
uh, and his body writhing like a lunatic, hitting the ground, throwing himself into the crowd, stage diving, he invented it, taking broken bottles and cutting himself open on his chest, smearing peanut butter all over himself, getting the audience involved, the physical aspect of it, and everything that's going on in Detroit at the time, what Lester Bangs famously called the rattling clankings of the auto industry where these young kids are forced to work the way their daddy did and their granddaddy did in these loud places and they're deaf. So they go to these, these clubs and they're like, turn it up. And these bands are turning it up and they're giving them the, 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 the working class vengeance that they want. And that's uh, the MC five politically. That's, the Stooges, physically. Alice Cooper, theatrically. Uh, the Grand Funk, musically. There, All these things are happening in Detroit. Death. Death, I shouldn't forget them. And it's all being broadcast out of a radio station in Toronto that is a 50,000-watch station that is inventing, that is splashing this music that's going on in the clubs. Unlike New York, where CBGBs, a lot of these bands you mentioned just died, these bands got on the radio. And they became big, and they had audiences, and they went on big tours. Iggy Pop touring with David Bowie. Alice Cooper was the biggest band on the planet in 1973. Grand Funk had big hits. Um, the MC5 didn't so much because of their political leanings, but th- these bands that came out of it and the bands after that, they became popular as well as punk. But this is the very bedrock of American rock and roll punk that I think influenced more than anybody else the British movement. Not just political leanings. They got in a lot of trouble because uh... – Rob Tyner, uh, the single off their first album, the second song on Kick Out the Jams, which they recorded live to make sure to capture it. You know, instead of going in the studio and trying to get what was so good about them live, they just did it live. But he opens a song with Kick Out the Jams, motherfuckers. You know, and they didn't want to take it off the record. They actually, I think the label, without their permission, ended up doing it. And it said something like, uh, I don't know, some hippie phrase. I can't remember what it is. Kick out the jams, brothers and sisters. Brothers That's what sisters, it is, you know, right. um, uh, against their will. But they got they got dropped, I think, for that. You know, they had some problems with that. Um, and they got they got co opted by the vel- by the Velvet Underground, by the Weather Underground, and by the the Yippie movement. And all those guys would use them to earn money for subversive acts, and they were very open about that. Well, they were um, they were managed by John Sinclair, who I used to know in, uh, in New Orleans, guitar player John Sinclair, but at the time was a, a critic and the founder of the White Panther Party, which was not a, a reaction to Black Panther thing about white power, but just about like, it was a, almost an homage to the Black Panthers about like, right. white revolution you right. know, in the 60s. And they, yeah, he took them to play at the, the 68 convention in Chicago. Right, they were at the, the Yippie riots. Festival there. They yep. were part of that riot. Yep. It's funny, you go from Detroit, which in 67 is having the riots, which are just recently portrayed in that movie, Detroit, uh, and, and then they go to Chicago in 68, where they're having their own other riots yep. for the, uh, the 68 Democratic and became, Convention. And he became a martyr for that. And John Lennon wrote a song and named it John Sinclair, put it on sometime in New York City, and got him released. He became like this martyr for the movement, for the underground movement. And I don't want to forget – I know we played the New York Dolls a couple of weeks ago, a couple of podcasts ago. So I don't want to forget them. They belong in this too because you hear a lot of what Iggy's doing and what Johansson is doing, that guttural, deep sort of singing. Iggy was obsessed with New York but brought back the best of New York to go to Detroit. And I would have to say this is an excellent song or an excellent band to play at this time because more than any of the bands we just mentioned, you're going to hear – the Velvet's in this, and you're going to hear the songs that you're going to play later. Let's play this song. You want to talk about it? Yeah. This is the first song you're, you're playing. Uh, down on the Street, yeah. Yeah. This Down on the Street is lyrically 
And musically, I think, the foundation of what we're going to be doing here over the next couple of podcasts. Uh, it's the first song on Funhouse, which I think is the best-sounding uh, Stooges record. This is Iggy and the Stooges, Down on the Street. 1970. Ooh. Ooh. Down on the street where the faces shine, floating around on a real old That's the Stooges, uh, Funhouse. 
So I want to talk about something else. Um, I want to go back and then forward a little bit. That was 1970. Back in 1969, the same year the Stooges' first album came out, kid in Boston named Jonathan Richmond graduates from high school, and he's obsessed with the Velvet Underground, so he just picks up his shit and goes to New York City. He ends up crashing on the couch of uh, Steve Sesnick, who was the manager of the Velvet Underground at the time. And he stays for about eight or nine months. And then he either gets tired of New York or whatever. New York can wipe people out, you know, because New York can be a pretty tough place to live without a lot of money, you know. And it's rough on people, especially kids, you know. Especially then. Yeah. And he ends up going back to Boston after about nine months. About a month after he's home, early 1970, he forms a band called The Modern Lovers. Uh, They play around for a few years. This band involves... Jonathan Richmond, I can't remember the drummer's name, but he later becomes oh, Robinson. David Robinson becomes the drummer for the Cars. Uh, Jerry Harrison is the other guitar player, keyboard player. He, uh, of course, is one of the founding members and forever members of Talking Heads. He's an incredible songwriter, and they're blowing people away in Boston with this band. Immediately when they start playing, they're blowing people away. In 1972, uh, A&M gets interested in them, and the Modern Lovers all head out to L.A., and over the course of a couple different sessions... They record all the songs uh, that end up on this record, except for, I think, one hospital, which was already recorded. Uh, this is 1972. A&M hears them and shrugs their shoulders and decides not to put it out. And so nothing happens. Four years later, in 70, 1976, Home of the Hits, which becomes Berserkly Records in my hometown of Berkeley, decides to release the Modern Lovers record that had been sitting there in demo form for four years. This record doesn't come out till 1976. It's still wildly influential on everybody. Four years after it comes out, it's still influential enough to become probably the best song on the uh, Sex Pistols' second album, um, their cover of Roadrunner. Um, what, now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because when I'm growing up in Berkeley, Jonathan Richmond, who has moved out there by then, and he uh, lives out there, he doesn't even consider this an album. It becomes one of the classic albums of all time. I'm going to see him play all the time with his band, also called The Modern Lovers, a completely different band in the late 70s and 80s. But he's playing a lot of the same songs from The Modern Lovers record and all his new songs. And it's unbelievable. He's got this twisted, fucking insane, cracked vision of the world. And I'm blown away by him. For a while there, he refused to use any amplification at all. He got so bummed out by rock and roll that he didn't want to play with any amplification. Um, By this time, he is using PAs and stuff. But... I read about him and I hear about this record, the Modern Lovers record, the band, the original Modern Lovers record, which is an instrumental part of punk music uh, that comes out in 1976, although it was recorded in 1972. I can't find it anywhere because back then things go out of print and that's it. Like Pet Sounds, like Smile, which never appeared. The record was done. They sent it back. A lot of cases they destroyed them, which drove up their price later for nuts like us. Like, I couldn't find Pet Sounds when I was a kid. I couldn't find... I eventually found Pet Sounds. I couldn't find Big Star. Oh, those Big Star records are they so They were rare. impossible to find. Even now. But, um, well, no, as, 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 Bill, as uh, Peter Buck once said, no, I've never seen uh, a big, an actual Big Star record. No one has. You know, we've heard Big Star, but we don't have any of those original records. None of us do, you know? Right. Um, but I couldn't find the Modern Lovers either. It's another one of the records that I got. I think we talked about that at one point. Maybe we didn't. The trip to England when my parents yes. took us on a trip to famous, England when I was a kid. Trip. Yes. And I had a list of records that I grew up Let me with. See if I remember the Fairport Convention, the 
the one that Townsend produced, the uh, uh, Thunderclap Newman, Thunderclap Newman, the Modern Lovers, uh, Big Star, Big Star Records, uh, know, Richard Thompson some. Records, Richard uh, Thompson. Billy Bragg Records, right, um, right, all these things that I had read about as a kid, but could never listen to because I, I, there was no way to find the record to hear it, and there was no internet then to get sure. MP3s off of, so. It wasn't until the early 80s when I went on this trip with my parents that I actually got the Modern Lovers record and took it home and got my mind blown. But Can I I'm tell you, just kind of interject, you know what my favorite part of that story is? So he goes all the way to England. He looks at all these, finds these rare, rare records. I can picture it all because I remember trying to get imports from Italy and all these other places when I was a kid. Even when I worked in a record store years after that, like 8045, he gets off the plane or wherever you were, you're walking and – the case that you had opens and all these records dump onto them. And when you told me that story, I didn't care anything else. I was like, did you save the records? Well, the funny thing is, you know, like after the first, you know, I was going through used record stores. Every city we were in, England and Scotland, I would like find the used record stores and I would just scour, you know, the same thing I did growing up in Berkeley. Sure, but this is a whole different record industry. They, they had stuff that we didn't have over here, you know, and I, uh, and once the first day I did it, I found like three or four things, and I realized like I got to find a way to carry this. The suitcase isn't any good. I, I bought this thing in one of the record stores. It might have been in the HMV over there. Yeah, they had those little little box. You it know, was like a box that had a little a, handle, a clip on it, sure. and it had a handle, like a yeah, like a briefcase handle, um, but very weak. And you know, I mean, it was cheaper than I thought it was, uh, but you know, it was reasonable. I bought it one by one. I filled the entire thing too because I bought so many records on my trip, and literally, it was when we were deplaning in. Uh, <laughs> In San Francisco, and we'd finally come home from England. I like walked out of the door of the into the the gate. I took three steps into the gate, and the handle broke. The thing <laughs> fell to the ground. It opened, and the record spilled everywhere. I like dove on the ground to protect them. Got them in the box and picked it up and carried it. And all I could think of was, "Fuck it, I don't care. I made it. There, I'm home now. I, I'm home. Some, I mean, this is going to work out fine now. Right. You know, I just carried it in my arms the rest of the way. But uh, hmm. you know." This is music so influential that even four years after it comes out, after it's recorded, when it comes out, it's still wildly groundbreaking. This is the, the Roadrunner, which is the... This, ladies and gentlemen, I think, if I was making a movie and it was about the punk movement or it was about that period of time, this is the song I would play. The Modern Lovers, Roadrunner. One, two, three, four, five, six. Roadrunner, Roadrunner.
quintessential American song. Uh, when I was working on the Shout It Out Loud book, the Kiss book, and I wrote about uh, Detroit Rock City, which is a quintessential driving song, I'm reminded of all the, the, the great uh, Wreck on the Highway and all these great songs, Springsteen and going all, ba- all the way back uh, to the songs about a car and rock and roll. And I'm reminded of the, uh, the, the, um, the Joan Jett version of this song that she made, I guess, a semi-hit in the 80s. And she she takes it from Massachusetts to New York City, and but they both had the stop and shop in there. Mm-hmm. And I love it's driving when it's cold outside in the car with the radio on. And he's going, you know, and he's, I, I walk past the stop and shop, and then I decided to drive past the stop and shop so I can put the radio on. I just love that he's talk singing it. It's the perfect lineage. I can see you could draw the line, Lou Reed, Iggy, Richmond. You could draw that line. Listen to the way they're singing over a driving beat in the rock and roll, and that keyboard is just so lo-fi. I love it. Me, it helps me from being alone at night. I don't feel so bad now in the car. Don't feel so alone. I got the radio on, like the Roadrunner. That's right. Then the the, the, line, the verse after that. The highway is your girlfriend as you go by quick. Suburban trees to bourbon speed, and it smells like thunder. And I say Roadrunner once, Roadrunner twice. I'm in love with rock and roll. I'll be out all night. 
And you that mean is, that? That is, that's connect. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm just, that's the quintessential moment. Fuck you, I'm in love with rock and roll and I'll be out all night. I mean, what, what else do you, what else is there in life when you're in a band and when you want to play music or just when you're a kid driving in the middle of the night with things flying by you on either side of your ears and they're filled with thunder, you know? Nothing better in my youth than having both, as my grandfather used to say, hey, you got air conditioning in here? No, I got 260. What's that? You put both windows down, you drive 60. <laughs> both windows down, driving in a highway or going out at night and blasting, just you name it. And blasting is the key. And just filling the whole car with wind and, and noise and music and just singing at the top of your lungs like a crazy man. That is so, as you said, it's quintessential America. It's quintessential rock and roll. And it's in so much of the stuff. And I think it, it also is a – it's not only a lineage, but it's an evolution where Lou and Iggy are singing about the urban experience, the plight and the, the vengeance and the working class and the struggling, whether it's an artist or somebody working on an assembly line. Here is here's Richmond singing about suburbia. That's another kind of shell game. It's another kind of prison for young kids who want to go to the city. You know, they want to do something else. I'm reminded of Sheena as a punk rocker. You know, New York City, it's like a homage to New York. The girl wants to go where where things are happening. He's getting in his car and he's going to go, but he's driving past all these suburban things like strip malls and cul-de-sacs, and he just wants to get somewhere where he can relate, and that's what I love about that song. I, I couldn't agree more. Also, there's a, there's a real tradition. I mean, it's part of why people really fell in love and got involved and got excited about this music is that it was really a return to the pure pleasures of uh, a guitar riff, a driving beat. There are a lot of songs. There are songs about more complex things too, but there are a lot of songs about like just the the pure power of rock and roll. As like he as he says, he just yelps out there, "I'm in love with rock and roll, and I'll be out all night." The pure pleasure of being a kid and just wanting to be free away from your parents and just with the radio on, as it says over and over again in, in the end of that song. It's um, a very 50s edict, too. Yeah. That reminds me of, um, of uh, Lucas's film, you know, American, uh, Graffiti. American Graffiti, but also the, uh, just cars and music, cars and rock and roll, cars and, ro- and rock and roll. And this idea, you know, like um, rock and roll will never die. The, the, you know, back in the 50s, they would write these songs like, hey, screw you, this is not... This is not a, a, a passing fad. This is not delinquent music. This is a movement. But by the 70s, we already knew that. But we kind of maybe lost our way. You know, we might have lost our way with you. You said people taking the, the, the baton that the Beatles laid out and the Beach Boys laid out and went in another direction. And a lot of that stuff I do like. But these guys liked the 50s stuff. More. Well, also, I just want to remind everyone that it's not so much that we lost our way doing it at all. It's that when you're living in that moment, Actually, in that moment, the radio isn't just filled up with the great people doing daring stuff with rock and roll who are writing deeply personal right. we only epic songs. It that way. It's filled with everything. And some of that, like we talked about the other day when we were listening to The Carpenters, uh, my memory of those songs is, is <laughs> colored by my memory of us covering those songs in our punk versions in Sorted Humor, where we're all singing the, the horn lines to ba 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 but when I actually heard Superstar, I was like, oh, God, I forgot how this music is. No wonder people wanted to play punk instead. This music will make you want to fucking blow your head off in times <laughs> because it's so, 
it's such treacle in ways. And right. so, there's it's so much saccharine. schmaltz and, and just like mm-hmm. thickness on top right. of it. Right. You know, that, that when you're living in this moment, it's not that you're re- re- rebelling against the great stuff. It's that you're, you're getting buried under it on the radio. Plus, you're not, that's not speaking to a 13-year-old pimply-faced boy. Well, but, it might. It might. It's just that not the, uh, let's face it, Top 40 Radio has always been a haven for shit. 90% shit and some other great stuff. That's what Top 40 Radio does. It puts, it puts everything popular and often shit. And, you know, so you're maybe hearing something you like, but it's surrounded by a ton of shit you don't like. And that, you know, there isn't FM yet, which is playing really cool stuff a lot of the time, you know. Sure. But we both agree that when we grew up with that kind of music, you with KSAM, me with WABC here in the New York area, that they played everything. And you got a full swath of what the music was. And we enjoyed each one for what it's worth. But I think when you start to get into that testosterone goes and you start to get into puberty and you start to, to, to be told no – and you, you, you start getting boxed in, and you're not that guy, you hear music that speaks to you. And these kind of songs do. And that's why I think it's great that you bring up The Runaways always, and, and maybe we'll play that later on. But I was going to say that that's a female version. It's so shocking because punk becomes a testosterone macho thing for a bit. Well, and when it, it a be- female voice comes out of it, that becomes even more shocking. Well, but it always is. Every rebellion in music that is always like, it's funny, you, you're rebelling against the testosterone football player or whatever, the guy that you don't like right, at your right, high school who listens to this other stuff. But then once we rebel for a while, we're flexing our muscles and we're now we're the bullies and we're telling other people they suck because they're right. playing pussy music. Right. You know, it, it's, it's a, an unfortunate side of human nature is that we don't like to be bullied and in and. But we'll be the bully as soon as we can. Sure. As soon as it's available to well, us to be the bully. F- well, once you find your gang... Now you're in a gang. Yeah, and you don't have to, but you will be the bully. I want to go back because I think you said something earlier, and I don't, you know, I think this is a, a, a lot of people's feeling. Uh, I don't know if they're going to play too many, uh, much of two songs by anybody in this thing, but I think there's a little, uh, because it was such a change, because some of the musicians switched around, Ron Ashton of the Stooges ends up on bass on the. The Stooges get into a mess during and after Funhouse. They're really, they're junkies. Yeah, I mean, except for Aerosmith, there's no band that was... It's like everybody's Keith Richards in this band. I mean, everybody's smacked out. Everybody's doing tons of drugs. People are, like, homeless for weeks. People disappear for weeks. I mean, their management, uh, main man management, put them up in a hotel for, like, six months because they wanted to hold them off until the Bowie tour was over. And for those six months, these guys went ran amok. And they became basically criminals. They destroyed every house they rented out. They they were they were being picked up by the cops. They were disappearing. They were they were putting cars in pools. It was everything rock and roll. The Stooges were completely lost. What I'm saying is, although Bowie didn't end up producing uh, Raw Power, I think he has a huge effect on it. He becomes uh, he's close with Iggy. I think he's a big part of Iggy kind of getting his shit together. Uh, They get Williamson in to play guitar. Ron Ashton, the guitar player who's unable to play, rejoins the band. He gets replaced because he's too fucked up. He come, rejoins the band and ends up playing bass. Uh, and they make this record, and like Bowie doesn't end up producing it. He does mix it. A lot of people don't like those mixes, because they're too, but he's doing something to it. And for me, there are some songs on this record that are pretty... Well, it's a more successful record than any of the others, but I also think it's got some moments that are just jet fuel. Uh, and I want to play this song, Search and Destroy. And before we get to it, I just want to take a couple lyrical... The opening... Verse, I'm a street-walking cheetah with a heart full of napalm. I'm a runaway son of the nuclear A-bomb. I'm the world's forgotten boy, the one who searches and destroys. In the next verse, look out, honey, because I'm using technology. Ain't got time to make no apology. 
soul radiation in the dead of night, love in the middle of a firefight. Iggy is channeling some pure jet fuel. He's also writing. This is not just simplistic bludgeoning. It, it, it's those are great lyrics, and they're as much about you know the pure fuel of rock and roll as as Roadrunner is, with a little different kind of anger to it too. You know, but um, there's real melody. There's real riffs because Williamson might be a little bit of a better guitar player. Um, well, certainly a more skilled one. I don't want to say better. Um, I just want to play this one song off of Raw Power because I think it gets. This is one of the nastier songs ever recorded as far as sound. Yeah, but it's also, it's got riffs, it's got melody, uh, it's catchy. This is Iggy and the Stooges, as they're called then. Wow, right. Uh, in 1973, from uh, Raw Power, Search and Destroy.
that is a great riff, a great melody. The lyric is out of this world. The band is is just they're snorting fucking jet fuel and they're lighting their asses on fire and playing it. It's fucking incredible. It's the closest thing to their live sound. It, it's, the whole thing is in the red. It's just a, it's just a, Let me say if you're not if you're not a fan of this music, that song will have you running for sedatives. Yeah, well, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like that's like 73, uh, you know, it, a little earlier. The height of the Stooges. That's it. They're yeah, done yeah. after that. Yeah. Johnny Thunder and David Johansson have formed the New York Dolls a little bit before that. Uh, right. That year in 73, uh, Tom Berlain and Richard Hell and Billy Ficker in a band called uh, Neon Boys. And they add uh, Richard Lloyd on guitar and they, they form television. Richard Hell realizes it's not his vibe, leaves. And by the way, please read I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp, which I reviewed for The Aquarian a couple of years ago, which is his uh, memoir. Richard Hells. Yes. Yeah, you know, Zoe loves that book. She's telling me how he's a, a poet, he's a writer, he's a brilliant he's a great guy. Writer. Him and him and Patty Smith, I think, wrote the best memoirs of any of the rock and roll memoirs I've read in the last huh. 20 years. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, in 74, the Ramones form. Uh, That's right. Don't get signed yet. In 75, television Means. records this demo. It's called Little Johnny Jewel. Right. Uh, yep. It's a. It's, uh, they don't get signed though, and Richard Hell. I think they're the first band to get booked at the CBGBs. The booked, first, yes, probably booked. Right. Um, Richard Hell leaves, forms the Heartbreakers uh, with uh, Johnny Thunders, who's now Thunders. left the New York Dolls right. because he's not getting what he needs out of television. The first CBGBs regular to actually get a record deal, however, was Patti Smith. Right, and she came later though. Patti Smith came later. At, the, at first, she was reading poetry at the Saint Mark's. Um, where Lou Reed had done it a generation earlier, the St. The, the Mark's um, uh, church there on, uh, what the hell is that on? It's not, it's not far from here, man. Uh, there's a little church that she would go in and read poetry, and then Lenny Kay, her future guitar player, plays on the first couple of records and play with her most of her career, uh, used to sit in with just an electric guitar and play in the back, noodle in the background, kind of like what you were saying you do to the comedy club, yeah. but on a different level. And then she ended up hanging out there, and then someone said, you better go up there. It's weird. She came to punk late. She was, wanted to be Jim Morrison. She wanted to be Mick Jagger. She wanted to be, or she wanted to be Verlaine or Rimbaud. She wanted to be a poet, and then she got pulled into it, and then she becomes, I believe, the very face of the punk movement. The, the androgynous male, black hair, those great Maple Thorpe photos of her. One of them ends up on the front of... Uh, What's well, one of the reasons she becomes the great uh, face the of it is that she has one of the great photographers of all time as her lover who's also taking pictures of her. Right. And so the pictures are so good. She's got her own originals, but she's also taking... If you look on Patti Smith's records and you find songs that she covered... Uh, Gloria by them, or Van Morrison wrote it. Uh, hey Joe, the the old song. It's not. No, I don't think it's actually Hendrix's song. No, it's an no. older song. Right. Uh, uh, on Easter, the second album, because uh, because the night by Bruce Springsteen. If you look at the credits for any of those songs, which she's covering other people on, they don't just say Bruce Springsteen or or Van Morrison. They say Patti Smith and them because she's doing her own songs. And she's also doing covers, but she's taking these covers and she's transforming them through these lyrical explorations of her own. Uh, she did. She wrote the second verse to, uh, to because, because the, the night. night. But she also there's a whole intro uh, to Hey Joe, which is about it was the same time that Patty Hearst thing was going on, and she writes this whole like That's uh, right. That's sex right. intro of Patty Hearst, uh, um, and it's pretty incredible shit. But the first album comes out in '75. It's Horses, and I want to play you the version of Gloria on there. Uh, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. But not mine. <laughs> the the full title is actually Gloria in Excelsis Deo. Right. Gloria colon 
in excelsis Deo slash Gloria. Because we all talk about making songs our own when we cover them, and we try our best to do it. But maybe no one has so completely ever made the songs our own by rewriting them yeah, the way uh, that Patti Smith does. So uh, this Plus, is from- doesn't she sing? Doesn't she sing? Do you have the lyrics there? No. All right, let's go over the lyrics because there's some things that she does here lyrically that are very androgynous. Uh, she was not a lesbian and didn't experiment in that direction, although she was sort of that icon for New York City, that male, female character. But she does write in a sense where she's writing from a male perspective. She doesn't change the perspective on this song the way like Linda Ronstadt did with, with male writers or other people have done. She she remains sort of this quasi-male, female. This whole album has a great undercurrent of androgyny, and also this idea of an outsider looking into a world. She, she's commenting on this world where everybody else is in it. She stands in the background. You could see, I can almost picture her with a little notebook writing about all these things that are going around in the Bowery. I, I love it. Her first single is Hey Joe, backed with uh, Piss Factory, which is one of her yes. uh, uh, poetry readings over music kind of thing. But this is, this is from Horses, 1975, Gloria, in excelsis Deo, Gloria, Patti Smith. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton, pot of thieves, wild cord of my sleeve, thick heart of stone. My sins, my own, they belong to me. Me. Say beware But I don't care The words are just Rules and regulations To me Me Yes. 
example of what I was talking about lyrically uh, this is from the second verse uh, and she's she's channeling the Van Morrison and Jim Morrison did a great version of this the door is where it gets very lascivious but she writes I walk in a room you know I look so proud again she's in it but she's not in it this is very much where her the beats are reflective you know her her Kerouacian concept of you're in it but you're not She's not, it's not like gonzo journalism later on or the new journalism like Tom Wolfe or, or Hunter Thompson where you're part of the story. You're in it, but you're commenting on it. I walk in a room, you know, I look so proud. I move in this atmosphere where anything's allowed. And I go to this here party, and I just get bored. Until I look out the window and see a sweet young thing humping on a t- parking meter, <laughs> leaning on a parking meter. Oh, she looks so good. Oh, she looks so fine. She's in a party, but she's getting her thrill from looking outside the window and seeing someone masturbating on a parking meter. Now, um, all of that, what that entails to me is, on a, as a writer, is that somebody who really understands the idea of picturing a place. And this is what you've talked about a thousand times with me. And we've talked about it on this podcast that you say it's the details, putting yourself in the situation, and that's what that song does. And, of course, it kicks ass, which also helps. But lyrically, she's a step above, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, we talked about – this is what I mean by talking about, like, you can make big mistakes when you try and really codify what you're rebelling against. Oh, we're rebelling against rock and roll turning into poetry. We're, you know, like, we're going to be like, well, except, you know, that's poetry. That's right. Patti Smith. You know, I, I guess I'm the one who always says no, but Patti Smith was – outside of her songwriting, 
a poet and a published poet. You know, Correct. she was very influenced by uh, Rambo. Um, you know, and she and her lyrics are complicated, and she's not the only one. You know, in the next year, as we talked about earlier, one of the guys who's the absolute core of punk is uh, Richard Hell, and his lyrics are also, you know, he leaves, he helps form two of the greatest bands in punk, and leaves both of them to form his own band, where he can write music and lyrics the way he wants to, where he can really express some, you know, some basic things, uh, but also some complicated things, and that are very interestingly written and 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 uh, unique as a voice um yeah she she i forgot to mention this though her first single the hey joe the guitar player both of her first couple singles i believe the guitar player is not lenny k it's uh it's tom verlaine because hmm. they're you know we talked about punk being so interwoven oh, that's right she brought verlaine with and each then other she was his lover for a while yeah and he's and he's playing the guitar on the first couple things she's not on that that's lenny k i think yes. gloria yeah. yes the first album um, which was recorded at uh, Jimi hendrix's studio Oh wow! Recorded really? it on West Eighth Street on, in, uh, at uh, oh, Electric, Electric Lady. Lady. Yeah, yeah. So it's very interesting because it doesn't take very long in punk for someone to actually start writing a, a, a very complex and interesting, almost poetry-like lyrics mm-hmm. again. You know, here we are. It's only 1975. The first band uh, signed from CBGBs is Patti Smith, and she's writing that. You know, which is not your basic thing. At the same time, <laughs> there are bands who are sick of all of that intellectualism and rock and roll and uh they don't want to be so fucking serious and they they start bands too mm-hmm. uh, and uh <laughs> thank god and the, one of the ones that's <laughs> I, I i kind of love is the dictators well i i didn't really listen to them much until you talked about them and i went back and checked out a bunch of dictator stuff you know and read a lot about them they're they're completely uh, obsessed with uh fucking and wrestling <laughs> strangely enough they, uh, they also cars, gotta give up cars they, they love the fucking cars. they love cars they love wrestling fucking in cars they and love wrestling. yeah they love probably wrestling in cars too um <laughs> and uh they're just they're amazing there's they they have a guy who's not their singer who's they, they call him like their m not a, it's not mc i can't remember the word they use he's their like special event yeah yeah and yeah. his name's handsome dick manitoba he does become their singer later okay. in years later. and he's on the cover of this record that yes yes uh, girl uh, crazy is the name of the record after or go girl crazy go girl uh, after <laughs> uh after rob tyner died he actually became singer i think of the is he the guy that comes singer of the mc5 later on when they reformed, they reformed a lot of times. For some reason, I think it's Handsome Dick Manitoba, which also, there's a lot of great names in punk. You know, Johnny Blitz and Cheetah Chrome and Stiv Bader's in The right, Dead right, Boys. Right. You know, the Ramones who, who renamed themselves all as four brothers, you know. Right. Um, but even but Billy Idol is a great name. Billy Idol is a fantastic name. Yeah. I think his real name is William Broad. <laughs> um, Johnny Rotten, you know, there's a million of them. Right, Sid Vicious, number one on the hip parade. But... I'm not sure any of those top handsome dick Manitoba, Manitoba. <laughs> it's um, and it's so New York boroughs. This band reeks of the boroughs. This is these guys are bridge and tunnel to the nth degree. They're not cool and they know it, but they want to be cool because they're going girl crazy and also because they write songs that, as you pointed out so beautifully, it's none of this stuff. They they have a tongue. There's no ethos or pathos to this. It's simply tongue in cheek, great, and it's really kind of what punk should have been. Kind of should have been like a Bronx cheer to the rest of the music business. Well, I don't know that it should have been exactly this. Part of what it is is this, <laughs> right. and even Patti Smith, in her way, is a Bronx cheer to the music business. You know, they all are. But I mean, th- th- there's a great line in the song: "Edumacation ain't for me." 
And he says, this is a song called Two Tub Man, which just means a big guy you can't fuck with. You know, right. I think it's a two tub man. Yeah, means. this, this, there is some great, so this is, please, when this podcast is over, listen to some of the artists that we were pitching out, but you have to listen to the entire Dictator's record. This record in and of itself is, it's like a sitcom is what it is. It's a musical sitcom. There's another great song we were torn by, between, between playing and uh, I know that James really wanted it. It's called Master Race Rock. <laughs> the Master Race in this I know it's easy to associate a lot of like Nazi symbolism with punk movement. They were talking about teenagers as the master yes, race. It was being co-opted the way the swastika was co-opted by the Nazis, and also by the, the, the that the that the punk music. Uh, if you want to read a truly great, but there's a couple of great books about punk music. Legs McNeil's um, "Please Kill Me," but uh, Grail Marcus's "Lipstick Traces." which is a history of rebellion from the late 1700s all the way through. He starts with the Sex Pistols. He spends time with them. And he talks about rebellion, and he goes all the way back to these different movements, the Dada movement and all this. But he specifically talks about – he has a whole full chapter, uh, Grail Marcus, about, uh, about the co-opting of the Nazi movement that, that a, a lot of the, the punks would wear the swastika, and it was disturbing. But it was part of their – especially in England, a real fuck you to the establishment. Oh, yeah. And that means a fuck you. It's just a big fuck you. It's it really just a is. Fuck it's a, not necessarily a great one. No. But this is not that song. This is Two Tub Man, uh, which is. <laughs> I think it might. It's one it of the. Speaks for itself. Handsome Dick Manitoba doesn't sing most of the stuff on the first album. It's Adney. Uh, there's the main songwriter, Adney. His name's Andy something, but he calls himself Adney. Uh, but, anyways, this is, uh, this is Handsome Dick Manitoba singing from 1975's Go Girl Crazy. This is The Dictators with Two Tub Man.
Toad Man. I never graduated from high school. Celebrating anti-intellectualism since 1975. <laughs> uh, the Dictators, fantastic record. Uh, every song on this record is a laugh riot, but also great riffs, good in-your-face stuff, and uh, wonderful, um, like I said, anti-establishment. Anti- but, but again, back to that whole Burroughs thing. It's, it's like a suburban re- rebellion. It's, it's not really MC5 Sex Pistols rebellion. It's more like... Eh, I'm not going to school, and I'm not. I'm going to skip well, class you know and get drunk. That's not. That's, you know, the truth is, most people in America live outside of New York and Detroit. You know, they. You know, a lot of people live in the suburbs. It doesn't make you know like. I drink Coca Cola, Coca Cola for breakfast. I've got Jackie Onassis in my pants. <laughs> I'm never going to watch Channel 13. One of the great. I'm glad the specificity of that, which is the public television PBS right. station here. Yeah. I'm never going to watch Channel 13. Education ain't for me. I'm so drunk I can barely see. I mean, uh, fucking great lines. I, I also like, I'm, I'm just a clown walking down the street. I think Lou Reed is a creep. Right. And Lou Reed, <laughs> funny, we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, he was sort of the godfather of the movement. He would hang around when he would walk into CBGB's. Everybody, oh, Lou's here, Lou's here. You know, and, and of course, uh, Max's Kansas City and places like that. But there's a lot of people who really couldn't stand Lou Reed because he sat on high and was like, crap, crap. He was, <laughs> shit, crap, that's no good. Hey, I kind of like that. Crap. You know, so people were like, yeah, fuck you, Marie. We didn't always have a reputation for being the nicest guy. No. You know, he would admit are. that. He would admit that, yes. Yeah. That Keep song is just, yes. so it, it literally made both of us laugh out loud as it, it was going by. We were, we were yelling out lines to each other. <laughs> What's the Joe Franklin line in there? Uh, Joe Funklin, Franklin is real or something, or is real neat or real... I think Joe Franklin is real flash. Flash. I don't mind if I kick your ass. Joe, Joe Franklin was sort of this, uh, I don't know what you would call him. Um, he was a New York icon. He's depicted in a lot of films. Woody Allen used to always celebrate him. Uh, but he would be on like at 1 a.m. on WOR-TV here in the 60s and 70s. And he would have on these big, big people that would come and hang out and talk to him that would be in town to, to do a show or be on a Broadway show. Uh, and, you know, it's for people who had insomnia. would stay up and watch Joe Franklin. He sort of became like this sort of anti-establishment TV character that a lot of the punks dug. Yeah, Joe Franklin. It's true. A Joe Franklin shout-out. That's pretty damn cool. Yeah, very, very cool. specific. That's 1975. A lot of things happened in 1976, and it's the year when it really starts to, like... I mean, 77 is known as the year punk broke, but there, the amount of incredible music that came out in 76 is... A lot of things happened. Uh, that Modern Lovers record finally comes out. After four years in the can, Richard Hell leaves the Heartbreakers, in his pattern, to form Richard Hell and the Voidoids. The Soft Boys, who we talked about in uh, podcast number two. Right. The Soft Boys form... Robin Hitchcock. Uh, in, in Cambridge, I think, in 1976. And in April of that year, The Ramones is released. 
First um, which right. changes everything for everybody. Uh, people come from all over to see it, to hear it. They, they that's really Europe. the flashpoint for the movement. They came. I mean, people came over from Europe to watch the, right. the Ramones. It was uh, on tour with the Ramones in in Cleveland is when uh, Cheetah Chrome and the other guy, I can't remember, it's Johnny Blitz or Johnny Zero from from who, who were in Rocket from the Tombs met them and talked them into letting taking you know getting a them to de- record their new stuff in New York uh, and they became the Dead Boys you know uh, a lot of stuff happened this record is really the flashpoint for the movement more than I think not that uh, we're talking about the, the birthplace of the movement early on but the flashpoint for it that, that ignites it all over the world yes is and, this Ramones record and and you know? the Ramones the cover to this Ramones record is as important in the history of rock and roll and rock covers as Elvis Presley's the famous shot of his first RCA record where he just looks like he was shot out of, out of some weird uh, futuristic cannon. The Beatles, the black and white half faces uh, on their second record, second American or British record. Meet the Beatles? Yes. Yeah. And the picture of these four gentlemen in black and white against a beat up wall, basically in a burned out area of the Lower East Side, really was the icon. And we've talked about Patti Smith and that famous maple. Maple uh, Thorpe shot um, that was shot, I think, that couple of blocks from here. And, uh, but this was really that cover, and of course, this album. Talk about lo fi. We started with Velvets, we started about New York City, and here we are in the middle of the decade, uh, the decade of punk, which we're celebrating in this podcast and several, is, is really crystallized, formalized in this record. Cover the the idea that they're all the Ramones, the ripped jeans, the leather jackets, the the dark hair. They just look like they stumbled off the F train uh, and, you know, and, and decided, to, decided to start a band like 15 minutes ago. And that's what this record sounds like. That's the beauty of the first Ramones record. And, you know, they're playing gigs right down the street, a few blocks from here. Um, we're going to end today's podcast with this. And when we – when uh, – our next podcast, we're going to start up in 1976 and talk about the rest of it as, as punk really explodes uh, with a million great songs from a million great bands. But there's probably nowhere more fitting to stop here as the beginning as that catches on fire. This is uh, from the 1976, The Ramones. This is Beat on the Brat. See you later. <laughs> Underwater Sunshine, we'll see you for the next punk podcast. Great idea. This was a great idea, man. We'll be back with more obnoxious shit. <laughs> beat on the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with the baseball bat. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh ho. Beat on the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with the baseball bat. Oh yeah.
Live. 